Welcome to Dissidents and Dictators, a series of conversations by the Human Rights Foundation dedicated to exposing and challenging authoritarianism around the world. Hello and good afternoon and and, and welcome. My name is Thor Halverson. I'm president of the Human Rights Foundation. It's a privilege to welcome you to this event that we're putting together with the uh, Committee to Protect Journalists. I'm I'm really very, very happy about this event. It's a It's the continuation of a long process that we've been involved with in the making of a film called The Dissident. The Dissident is a film about the murder of the Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. And so much of what we are going to discuss today and describe today is so um, inextricably linked to uh, power, dictatorship, tyranny, and oppression. Um, I'm uh, so happy that we are joined today by Omar Abdulaziz. Omar Abdulaziz is a uh, one of the most heroic young activists I've ever come across. Um, I'll give you a little bit of the background and then I'm going to turn it to the panel. We, uh, the Human Rights Foundation, produces a conference every year called the Oslo Freedom Forum. It's a conference that gathers people from across the world uh, who are on the front lines of the struggle against dictatorship. They are journalists, technologists, whistleblowers, Um, activists, human rights defenders, people who um, tend to raise their voice. And we bring them together to Oslo where they get a chance, a platform to talk about what they're doing and also to network with people. So you have people from North Korea, from Cuba, from Russia, from Saudi Arabia, networking with each other and getting a chance to see what it's like in their countries Uh, and and essentially creating like a a, a really wonderful community, a welcoming community for them. Jamal Khashoggi was invited to come to the Oslo Freedom Forum and he came um, a, a, a few months before he was murdered. While there, he was able to mix with some of our activists and we learned what he was up to, what was going on, how concerned he was about the communicational hegemony that Saudi Arabian dictatorship had over social media and specifically over Twitter in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. I, by chance, a few weeks after his horrific murder, uh, met a director, an Academy Award-winning director who had just finished a film uh, a year prior called Icarus and had won the Academy Award, a film about Russia and and the doping scandal. And he was determined to make a movie about Jamal's murder. And we at the Human Rights Foundation had access to knowledge about what the reason was behind the murder and all of the context around uh, social media and Twitter. And that's how we linked Uh, Omar Abdulaziz to Brian Fogel and essentially ended up producing the film. I'm um, very, very happy that you're here. Uh, This event is going to focus on press freedom, the dangers of spyware. It was spyware that brought about the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. His phone was infected with a virus that originated in Israel and It was sold to the Saudis, and this weapon was used to control and know everything that Jamal Khashoggi was doing, everything that Omar was doing. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Courtney from the Committee to Protect Journalists to introduce the panelists. Again, uh, it's for me a great pleasure to welcome you. Um, Thank you very much. I I hope you have uh, a wonderful event today. Thank you, Thor. Um, Yes, so my name is Courtney Raj. I'm the Advocacy Director at the Committee to Protect Journalists. And this week we launched a global campaign 
to raise awareness about the dangers that uh, spyware poses to journalists. Because in this labyrinth of deceit that is behind this very high profile murder of Jamal Khashoggi, it, it really was stunning in its malevolence, but it was all too familiar for journalists who are reporting on sensitive topics or commenting critically on their political leaders. Because digital threats may be invisible, but their impact is not. And we're gonna hear about that from the panelists today. The impact is seen in the murders, the imprisonment, the attacks, the harassment and censorship of the journalists who are targeted by advanced weapon grade technology spyware that in many cases is sold only to governments, often to authoritarian governments by countries that are based in uh, democracies or who claim the mantle of democracy. So that's something I want us to think about today as we delve into this discussion. So we launched this campaign this week because we need to stop the use of spyware and to prevent states with bad press freedom records from getting such tools. So we've actually mapped a subset of the vast number of incidents to which journalists and those close to them were targeted by spyware by states since 2011. And these were just the ones where we could identify who the target was, uh, where we thought we could identify which state was responsible or behind the uh, spyware and which company was implicated. There are many more, and we're going to hear from my colleague Jonathan Rosen more about that in a moment. Now, spyware puts freedom, press freedom, access information at risk, but authoritarian regimes around the world um, are increasingly using this technology to spy on journalists, dissidents, and activists, as you've heard. And so, with Jamal Khashoggi being one of the most horrific cases, I'm going to start there before we broaden into the broader issue. And I want to start with award-winning director Brian Fogel, who, you know, many of you watching this today received the link. Um, hopefully you got a chance to watch The Dissident. It is chilling. It is fascinating. And there's a whole component um, related to these events that have to do with uh, spyware. I'm then going to turn to Saudi activist, blogger, and close friend, as you heard, of Jamal Khashoggi, Omar Abdulaziz, who is living in exile in Canada. We're then going to hear from a journalist who has been recently targeted uh, and, and face the repercussions of what happens when spyware is deployed and used to then link to online harassment. So Hada Oweis, a uh, journalist with Al Jazeera. And then finally, we'll conclude with uh, with some uh, input from my colleague, Jonathan Rosen, who's our senior Africa researcher and led the kind of collaboration around this research project and campaign that we launched. And I want us to be in conversation. So we're going to start first with Brian and just hear a little bit about, you know, what were, can you talk about what was the issue with spyware linked in Jamal's, um, to Jamal's murder? And how did you as a filmmaker knowing what you did about spyware and the hacking that occurred, um, make this film and keep your sources safe and do it safely. Well, um, uh, hi all, thank you all for joining. Uh, pleasure to be talking to everyone. Um, look, what, what drew me uh, to this story outside of, you know, the horrific murder of Jamal Khashoggi um, was the attack uh, on Omar Abdulaziz uh, by Pegasus, um, you know, uh, NSO's group's, um, you know, cyber hacking tool, which uh, they sold to Saudi Arabia and have sold to countless countries. Um, because in 
this hack and their use of software, not only were they able to gain access to Omar Abdelaziz and the work that he was doing, they were able to gain access to Jamal Khashoggi as arguably his phone uh, was hacked as well. And the information uh, that they were able to gather through using Pegasus um, arguably led to Jamal's murder as they understood that Omar and Jamal were working uh, on being able to retake uh, the public sphere uh, on Twitter, uh, which Saudi Arabia has and was uh, manipulating. Um, but this element uh, to the story within, I guess you would call it the behind the scenes story of the murder of Jamal, um, really uh, was one of the, the key reasons why I made the film because I, I saw in this story of the hack, um, not only the, the ongoing uh, risk and dangers uh, that cybersecurity and cyber hacking poses to the dissident community around the world and poses to free speech around the world. Um, as I also started to, you know, work with people like uh, John Scott Railton and speak to others like uh, John Brennan uh, or Anthony Ferrante, who was, uh, you know, who investigates uh, hacks and worked on the Jeff Bezos matter. Uh, it became clear to me, uh, you know, how serious this matter is on a global stage and the protection of journalism, the protection of journalists, and also the protection of free speech and dissidents all over the world. Thanks, Brian. You mentioned um, this this effort by Saudi Arabia to control the public sphere. Omar, you and Jamal were working on a project, and it features in the dissident. Tell us a little bit about what you were working on and, and, you know, what is, what are the bees? Hi, 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 Can you hear me now? Um, okay, we're having a little bit of trouble hearing from Omar. So let me um, give him a moment to get set up with his earphones. Um, so Brian, can you just talk a little bit more about, you know, how you kind of, it, it's, it can be hard to, I think, make a film about that includes uh, digital threats. Like how, how did you go about portraying that? How did you think about how to make that visible in the documentary? but you'll have to unmute so we can hear you. Oh. Uh, You're unmuted now. Yep. Uh, how's that? Can you hear me? Yes, we can, thank you. Okay. Uh, if, you if you see the film, uh, The Dissident, um, you'll see that we use a lot of CGI, animation, motion graphics, um, 3D rendering techniques, et cetera, um, to essentially bring <laughs> forward this cyber world uh, and this world of, of, uh, of, of cyber warfare. Um, and we do so and, and did that um, essentially because I think it's very hard to kind of wrap your head around um, what this threat is and how this works. And so in the, uh, in the film, we go into an explainer about Pegasus and use some pretty complicated motion graphics and animation to kind of show how Pegasus works, how it pings off of servers, how it gets into your phone, and basically how the end user, uh, meaning the Saudi Arabian government or those monitoring that phone, are then able to use this software to, uh, to manipulate and control. 
uh, when we go into um, uh, the story um, of Jeff Bezos's phone, uh, we do a similar thing. And uh, in the film, we also go into uh, the bees and the flies, uh, the work that Omar was doing, um, you know, his army called the bees, which is essentially a cyber army uh, that has been trying to recontrol and take back over control of the narrative that the Saudi Arabian government uh, has false, falsely propagated uh, on its people. And again, we go into a pretty big uh, animated sequence for that. And, and we chose that because it was a way to visually convey um, what these stories were uh, on, you know, uh, in, in cyberspace, um, you know, within the context of the story in the film. Thank you. And it looks like, Omar, we have you back with us, hopefully with earphones. So on that, can you talk a little bit more about what you and Jamal were working on? And then of course, you know, both in terms of the social media manipulation and the conversation, but also, you know, what you have been targeted with spyware, how you're working, you're, you're in exile. Tell us a little bit about your story. I don't know if everyone on here uh, is familiar with it. Okay. Simply, I would say that uh, uh, when MBS became the crown prince, or when he came to the power and he started to control everything in the country. Uh, he realized since the day one that uh, uh, Twitter is the most important platform in Saudi Arabia. So eight out of uh, 10 Saudis are using Twitter. So whenever you want to shape the, the, the opinion of the people of Saudi Arabia, you have to control Twitter. Whenever they want to release a new law, or create a new event. So they would use Twitter as a tool to uh, to see the reactions to, not only to shape, but also to see the reactions and to see the, to get the feedback from the people. By that time, there were hundreds of public figures, uh, well-known people, uh, scholars, uh, activists, uh, uh, politicians who are, I wouldn't say, who are uh, uh, tweeting freely, but, and I wouldn't lie, I would, I would not tell you that Saudi Arabia was a democracy before, but at least we had that margin, you know, whenever you're going to speak about something, at least you're, you, you're not going to be jailed. Uh, so Mohammed bin Salman, he, he, he believed that if he's going to control Twitter, then he can't say anything, he can, he can uh, uh, create anything. He can go. He can go in war against Qatar or in Yemen or against Iran or so on and so forth. And nobody's going to question anything, especially if he's having or if he's controlling the local narrative. And that's going to happen through Twitter. So he created his own army, thousands of of, of employees who are just working every single day, twenty four seven, just to. Uh, just to promote Mohammed bin Salman's uh, ideas, uh, Vision 2030, and sometimes to uh, threaten others, sometimes to run hashtags, and uh, sometimes just to fill your mention with uh, very negative replies. And we have Rada here. She, I think she's the she's she's the one who's professional at this because uh, in the last few months or, or years, she was uh, she uh, she was attacked every single minute by 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 the trolls we call them the flies so jamal khashoggi at once he told me that omar i feel that the whole country is against me 
Whenever I'm writing something, everybody's attacking me, everybody's insulting me. What's, what's really happening? I told them, no, no, this is not the truth. You're just talking about 15 to 20 people. Every one of them is having about 20 accounts, maybe. So if you would tweet just one tweet, they can reply with 200. And then you would have that impression that the whole country is against you. Then I asked some of my friends, I said, guys, Jamal is going to tweet in, in, in five, 10 minutes. Just I want to give him an example about it. So I asked him to tweet. He tweeted something. And we replied with about uh, 28 replies. And he said, wow, it's great. It's amazing. What's really happening? I told him, trust me, we're just five people. And imagine if you're just against thousands of people. Uh, from that moment, we decided to create the what we call the Peace Army. Not only to, to, to film mentions, not only to threaten people. We, and this, we didn't do that. We didn't use their methods. We didn't use their, their ways. We used our own way. We wanted to allow people to speak and tweet freely. We wanted people to, uh, 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 to speak about the reality, what's really happening in the country, what's really happening in Saudi Arabia. And, uh, uh, and, and Saudi Arabia did not like that, right? Yes, sure. So sure. Tell sure. us, what did you find? You know, you were hacked. Uh, you... Tell us about what that, what kind of spyware, tell us what, the, what did that do? Tell us a little bit more about that situation. Okay, it's it started, uh, so they hacked me on 23rd of June, but the story started on May 2018, when the Saudi government sent two representatives uh, uh, with my brother, Ahmed, who's jailed now. And they came to Canada and they said, we do have a message from Mohammed bin Salman, MBS. He's, uh, he's telling you that he really likes you. He watches your videos and he wants you back. It didn't work. I asked some people, including Jamal, I said, uh, what do you think about this? Not because I wanted to go back to Saudi, but, uh, but just I wanted to see what, what's, what they're going to do. They said, okay, Jamal told me, Omar, if you want to meet them, just meet them in public places. Don't meet them in private places and uh, uh, be careful. So, uh, it was it was difficult for me and at the beginning i said okay it's just i want let me just hear the message and uh, in the last few days they they were insisting that i go with them to the saudi embassy they said amr please just go there and get yourself a new passport that's it i said guys i'm not comfortable i i i, I don't like the idea they said okay you don't even have to go back to saudi at least get your get yourself a new passport it didn't work. I didn't go with them. So when they left with my brother, Ahmed, six weeks later, they hacked my phone. They sent me that link. I was waiting for uh, uh, my protein powder. <laughs> so I thought uh, it was a legit uh, message. Track your package, DHL. I clicked on that and that's it. About uh, five, six weeks later, by the beginning of August, I started to receive phone calls from my family members, from my friends, and every few, uh, two or three hours, I'm receiving a new phone call. Uh, people are telling me that Omar A is, is they just they just got him. They just arrested uh, Ahmed. They just arrested Muhammad. They just arrested A, B, C, D, like dozens of people. So it was it was a shock for me. I had no idea what 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 was going on. Few days later, I received a phone call from Bill Marzak from Citizen Lab, 
and uh, he said uh, hi i'm i'm pilmar jack from citizen lab and uh, i'm just wondering that if do you know anyone who might be uh, a potential target in quebec who might be hacked by the saudis i said listen you know i don't know but if they're going to hack someone they would hack me <laughs> i had no idea about the time so uh, and he and he laughed he started to laugh he said okay no listen kid it, it, it doesn't work like that we have to check first i said okay how how, how come how, what what can we do he said, let me just come to your place. Let me just come to Montreal. He came all the way to Montreal and then he started to check. Till that moment, I had no idea that my phone was hacked. So simply, they were listening, they were reading every single conversation between me and Jamal and other activists. So let, me pick, yeah. so let me pick up on that because I think you hit on a couple of really key things about spyware. So first off, you know, some spyware, you you click on it. It's called phishing or spear phishing, where they give you a really targeted email or something that you click on with a link, a message, and it infects your, your device. But we've also seen that spyware is getting much more sophisticated, where it can be you know, pushed out or network injection where you have the ability, you know, you don't even have to do anything as a user. So, you know, it's, it's harder and harder for journalists, I think, to keep themselves safe. And I think, you know, your story of being, of, of you know, being told to go to the Saudi embassy is, is incredibly chilling. But I want to turn now to Hada because, you know, she was uh, a, a most, the most recent, I don't want to say victim, but target of these types of attacks that involve both hacking and this serious, severe, terrible online harassment that, you know, why don't you tell us a little bit about what happened to you and, and what impact that has had on your ability to do journalism? You're, you work for Al Jazeera, which um, to contextualize is one of the, um, I think, thorns in the side of Saudi Arabia, right? Saudi Arabia dominates the Middle Eastern media market. Um, Al Arabiya is, is Qatari. There is a major diplomatic um, you know, row between the, the two countries. So there's a lot going on there. Tell us about what happened to you, Hada. Thank you, Courtney. And uh, let me thank you for this uh, opportunity to speak about uh, what happened to me with uh, Omar and uh, Brian. And I want to thank Omar because he doesn't know until now that he was uh, part of the, uh, uh, you know, psychological support that I had in my uh, 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 in my head because what happened was really uh, very, uh, you know, emotionally it was very hard on me. But then again, I was thinking uh, of Omar and uh, what he went through because he had also pressure not only by uh, being spied on, but he has a family in Saudi Arabia. And that kind of pressure, I don't think that um, someone who is not, uh, you know, uh, who has uh, the the big will and the 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 power to 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 be under this pressure gave me power uh, in return to uh, adapt with this the fact that I'm being spied on and maybe till now because um, when I when I when I was um, uh, reading what was uh, posted on Twitter I realized that they were uh, also like said like Omar said. Uh, listening to my conversations, they went through my phone and they have all the data I have on my phone. Uh, they have uh, all my private pictures, my family's pictures, my addresses, uh, my accounts everywhere, and my bank accounts, my addresses. 
uh, my uh, everything everything related to my private life and also to my professional life but um, fortunately I don't I didn't have any um, secrets that might uh, be uh, you know if, if it was uh, leaked that won't if, if it is leaked it won't be uh, a big harm uh, because uh, uh, unless you put some fake news with it which was the case uh, let me just tell briefly my story what happened because maybe some of you uh, don't know what happened exactly with me uh, last year in the uh, 2nd of June in 2020 2020 I was just having uh, my uh, a dinner with my husband it was his birthday and I had uh, received this uh, message urgent message from a friend of mine a colleague in Al Jazeera saying Beware, there's something wrong going on on Twitter. You are being under attack. I went uh, uh, to Twitter and I saw uh, uh, my private pictures, uh, private uh, pictures of me in a swimsuit in the private uh, or, or the public swimming uh, uh, pool in, um, in the building where I live in Doha. And uh, the pictures were, you know, um, pixelated in, in a way that made me look as if I was nude. So they, they pixelated the the swimsuit and they uh, pretended that i was naked and that uh, that hot tube jacuzzi tube was uh, in uh, and the chairman of al jazeera's uh, farm as they said in arabic and that i was there with him and that was uh, a pr private uh, pictures stolen uh, from my colleague al al-faris and this is what they pretended and that they uh, and she was uh, you know the fake news or the the, the story that they um, they invented that i she was jealous from me because she wanted the chairman for herself and then she put uh, uh, those private pictures to uh, embarrass me in front of everybody etc and you know I, I that was not the first time i was uh, under severe attacks smart campaigns on online on Facebook or on YouTube or even on internet in general. But what I saw that night was like anything, wasn't like anything I have seen before because this this was the first time I realized that I was hacked and then the the the, the material that was hacked was leaked and doctored. And so, this is that was, you know, the shock because it, I, I was covering news for like 20 years and that was the first time I see myself as uh, not only, you know, under attack, but hacked and the hacking material was leaked and the leaked uh, material was uh, manipulated in a way that makes me look naked and that makes me, and you know, there were, there were 40,000 tweets uh, describing me as a prostitute and as a slut. Um, first, I want to say that I'm thank you for sharing this because it can't be easy. Um, this is a terrible attack, not only on you personally, but professionally. And unfortunately, the types of thing that you're describing is a common occurrence these days in journalism. We actually know that um, online harassment, including, you know, online harassment is this kind of generic term for really terrible things like 
hacking into people's phone and putting these pictures online, manipulating them, putting on personal information. Uh, so when I say online harassment, I want to recognize there's a large that covers a large swath of you know types of attacks, and this is experienced by journalists as a routine part of their jobs, especially women journalists, especially journalists who occupy any sort of you know minoritized identity. So. Hara, we are grateful for you sharing this. I think your story really illustrates the link between hacking and online harassment. Um, and I, to that end, I want to move to my colleague, Jonathan, because he really collaborated with all of the Committee to Protect Journalists to bring together all of our reporting on hacking, on spyware, um, to help us really get a global picture of what is happening around the world, how journalists are being targeted, which countries are likely behind the attacks, and which companies um, are involved. And, you know, one thing that really, well, let me turn to Jonathan to give us an overview of kind of what were some of the main things that we saw, because we've heard a lot about what's happening in the Middle East. We know that is one of the areas where spyware um, and surveillance of journalists is rampant. It has one of the worst press freedom records in the world. And I'm speaking as somebody who got kicked out of a country in the Middle East for my journalism. Um, so from personal experience, but you saw this around the world. So tell us a bit about the dynamics that you saw in this research. Thanks, Courtney. Yeah, the, the report that we published this week uh, documents dozens of incidents where journalists, commentators, and their close associates, including their family members, were targeted with spyware over the last 10 years. Um, these incidents, which we uh, you know, gathered and, and mapped in an interactive map uh, on our website, uh, include targets on nearly every continent. Uh, the state suspected um, of being responsible for the targeting in these cases and the companies that allegedly supplied this spyware to those governments. This research really generally indicates an alarming pattern of international surveillance where private companies based in Israel and Europe uh, sell their technology, their spyware products to governments, which in turn use them to reach across countries, across oceans, into the devices of journalists and, and their associates. Uh, to monitor their lives without their knowledge. It's a network of secret surveillance that has you know, serious consequences as, as um, you know, the, the other speakers here today will attest. In addition, uh, the reporting that we gathered demonstrates the lack of transparency around this industry and these targetings, and you know, just generally how serious and global uh, a threat to press freedom spyware has become. Um, you know, just before moving on, uh, the is it also I want to emphasize that this uh, this report that we just published and, and the map, uh, you know, are a product of, of the reporting and interviews that we have done at the Committee to Protect Journalists, but they're also really uh, the product of a, uh, a global uh, coalition of researchers and extraordinarily talented investigators um, from Citizen Lab at the University of Toronto. Uh, to Amnesty International's uh, technology team, uh, to you know the journalists at Reuters, and and advocates from from numerous other organizations that um, you know have come together uh, around this really important issue to document these incidents and and make clear that there are serious consequences for them. Um, 
the the countries that we identified uh, are, are sus suspected to be responsible for for targeting that that we've documented uh, are you know include United Arab Emirates, obviously Saudi Arabia as has been mentioned, Morocco, uh, Ethiopia uh, under a previous administration, Mexico and, and India, and really the the targets are all over the world, from Mexico to Canada, the United States, across Europe, the Middle East, uh, and and India. Um, so it the the reporting that we've compiled is uh, you know the product of of collaboration and really indicates the global nature of this threat to press freedom. Thanks, Jonathan. I think it it also illustrates just how challenging it is to do this type of research, right? I mean, the fact is is that trying to attribute these attacks and figure out who's behind it. Um, is incredibly challenging work. And so I don't think any of us can do this type of work without working together. Um, I know that, you know, CPJ has joined several groups, including Access Now, um, who I think is leading the amicus brief uh, against the NSO group and a lawsuit filed against the NSO group, which is the maker of Pegasus spyware. Um, one thing that stood out for me, Jonathan, is you know, you followed up with many of the companies and the countries um, that were identified um, through this collaborative research and, and documented on this great map that you can find on cpj.org backslash spyware uh, that, you know, almost no one commented. So talk a little bit about how challenging it is to even figure out what's going on. I mean, we heard from Omar how he had to go in person to see Bill from, from Citizen Lab to you know get his device checked. I mean, how challenging is this for journalists to figure out whether they're being spied on and hacked? Yeah, it's, it's extremely difficult. The, the nature of the industry is you know, secret. And so, um, you know, as in our reporting for this, we reached out to all of the companies uh, that were named and, and all of the governments that are involved or allegedly involved in this. And uh, from the governments, we received no substantive responses. Um, there are, uh, you know, uh, investigations ongoing in Mexico and in India to uh, identify those responsible for the numerous journalists uh, and other civil society members that have been targeted in those countries. We asked for updates on those uh, investigations and uh, received no response. And, you know, we, we reached out to all of the other governments I, I've mentioned to to ask um, for comment and, and didn't re receive any response. We also reached out to companies involved. Uh, the NSO group did uh, respond. Um, they have been responsive, but but the the engagement that civil society has had with the NSO group, um, you know, has been fraught with opacity. The, they they claim that their uh, tools, this Pegasus spyware, which can remotely hack into um, devices and in in certain cases, you know, with a clicking of a of a link. In other cases, rem, uh, just without uh, needing to have a click or a zero uh, click hack. The the responses from them have have you know they have not indicated who their clients are and really given no substantial information um, uh, to bring clarity around why these attacks are taking place and uh, the justification for them. Meanwhile, you know there is a steady drumbeat of of um, documented cases being revealed by the investigators at Citizen Lab and and Amnesty International, showcasing that you know as this dialogue. Um, you know, ostensibly is is working towards improved transparency. You know, journalists continue to be targeted with this spyware. 
which is precisely why we have put together a policy brief with recommendations to lawmakers about what needs to be done um, to help protect journalists because journalists can't do it on their own. They need the support of policymakers. And I wanna remind people that you can put a question into the chat. And we have had several questions that are right along with where I wanna move next, which is what is the responsibility of these companies and of the countries where they're based to um, to deal with spyware, to prevent it from being deployed. Um, one question here is about the obligations of tech companies to prevent and detect spyware delivery and propagation via their platforms. And this is specifically, I think, coming out of the issue with Pegasus, a very pernicious um, spyware that's been linked to several attacks um, on journalists, uh, exploiting what's called a zero-day uh, exploit on WhatsApp owned by Facebook. So Omar, can I ask you to maybe start with that? What should what can be done uh, to try to prevent this type of technology from getting into the hands of governments like Saudi Arabia or other um, press freedom violators? Well, actually, it's 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 a bit difficult to talk about that because uh, till now some companies. Uh, which provided the technology, they're denying that they've made any deal or any they signed any contracts with these governments, including Saudi Arabia and uh, UAE. So sometimes um, uh, what 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 you guys are doing is is great, and that's definitely is going to help. Uh, what Rada is doing by filing a lawsuit against. Uh, those countries and its its leaders is good and that would help too uh, but i do believe that the international community should act more should do more to uh, put more pressure on these uh, companies if the companies are not responding are not responding they should put more pressure on their governments uh me too i'm, I'm filing a lawsuit i already filed one against uh, uh nso uh yes it's 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 taken a while but uh uh by filing lawsuit i'm not just uh, uh trying to tell the people that i was hacked but i want everyone everybody to be aware about this and here's the thing just to be honest what i started to do uh, since then is trying to make people aware of that so every single day i'm telling people please do not click on any link please if you're using your phone uh, on activism or something do not share do not share your phone number with anyone so it's 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 a, a, a bit difficult but uh we just realized that day after day um there is there's this kind of pressure but hopefully things are changing soon well thanks for that and and you know you point out there there is certainly guidance that journalists and activists can follow and we have um a lot of that on cpj.org backslash Spyware and a whole section of our website de devoted to uh, tool safety guides and toolkits for journalists. So I'm sure my colleagues will post something in the chat here. Um, but you know, you point out something which is, you know, not all of this spyware is something that you can again that you can like click on and get. A lot of it is delivered um, via, you know, 
messages, the telecoms. So we have a question in the chat about the role of telecommunications companies in preventing spyware. And this is of particular interest to me because I worked as a journalist in the Emirates uh, in 2009 when there was a case of the um, the state-owned telecom pushing out spyware to Blackberries. That was back in the Blackberries day. Um, and we found out about it relatively quickly. But Khada, I want to ask you, I mean, you work in Qatar. It's, uh, you know, the state-dominated telecom as well. So two questions for you. One, um, you know, what do you think about, you know, using state-owned telecoms? Are you concerned um, about that situation? And B, what do you look for, given that you work in a region where there is a lack of democracy, there's a lack of kind of rule of rule of law and democratic protections? Are you looking to countries like Canada, like the United States, the UK, the EU, to put um, restrictions and protections on the use of this spyware? Can you unmute? There you go. Oh. Okay. Um, you mentioned uh, that I uh, live in Doha, in Qatar, and there is a lack of, in the region of uh, democracy and press freedom, and this is state controlled telecommunication. In Qatar, there are rules and laws that forbid anyone uh, from uh, spying on any uh, uh, if, if for example if the police comes and we and, and tells me uh, we heard you saying this and that i can file a lawsuit against them against the state of qatar itself in qatar if they spy on me it's against the law in qatar to spy on people unless you are uh, uh, unless it is there is a criminal uh, uh, thing related to for example uh, uh, terrorism or uh, something that has to do with security and actions not uh, not uh, not uh, you know opinions political opinions because i do express my opinions uh, my political opinions even um, about uh, qatari's uh, um, uh, government uh, policy or about you know um, anything related to qatar i express myself uh, over the phone with my family with my friends with my colleagues and i i never felt that even if I, if they were listening, or someone is listening, even if the uh, Qatari are uh, themselves are listening, I didn't feel any, you know, danger because I have been living here uh, since uh, 16 years. If if they were spying and they and there was there were any danger, there was any danger related to uh, uh, political opinions, I would have been arrested long time ago or kicked out of the country long time ago. It's not a democratic country, yes. But it's not like UAE or Saudi Arabia. It's, it's known that um, they have a problem with Al Jazeera, those countries, because Al Jazeera uh, has, you know, um, it, it's, it's a platform for, for, uh, for, for, for all of the opinions, even the opinions that criticize Qatar. So when you put critics uh, about Qatar on Al Jazeera, you cannot, you know, spy on people in Qatar because they are criticizing Qatari government. So it's you were still it's targeted. You were still targeted by spyware, right? So do, what about looking at those, um, you know, just the broader picture of the world? Do you think that we need stronger restrictions and controls on spyware in order to try to? Mitigate of course, because spyware, spyware, you know, every I think all countries, including UK and the European governments, they do use spyware, but for the right reasons. That means they are, you know, protecting their security. Where you live, Courtney, I think 
also government are uh, you are using spyware somehow i don't know how it works but you know to to uh because now we we, we live in this era where everybody is every government has uh, to uh, you know to to um, to follow uh, 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 terrorists and to follow uh, what what's happening you know the the subjects related to terrorism everywhere you have secret agents even in the united states or even where you live courtney they have spiders i'm sure of that we are all journalists let's not we be have, let's not be naive you, we are all we you know when it comes to spyware you uh, israeli spyware used against journalists and used against dissidents like Omar and journalists like me this is this is where the problem is that we have to address if you talk in general governments won't help united nation won't help they will say it's you know it's it's the weapon of today before they used the swords now they use this the problem is that they are targeting journalists and dissidents if they are targeting a, a government, if, we, if we're going to talk in general, we won't address the problem. Mm -hmm. They will say it's for security reasons, even in your countries and, and democratic governments. You cannot address the problem this way. You have to be more specific and to put your finger at the government, the authoritarian regime, who is putting spyware and the phones of dissidents like Omar, of someone like Jamal Khashoggi in order to kill him. I mean, if you are listening to, uh, you know, Obama was accused of listening to Angela Merkel. I'm not going to address this problem. I don't care what's happening between governments and the problem of security in, in, on, on your lands or in Qatar lands. This is another problem. Now we're talking about spyware uh, used by Saudi Arabia as an authoritarian regime uh, and used by UAE to spy on, on journalists and then kill them like they killed so this region, yes, it's not a democratic region, but you cannot say that every Lebanon is like UAE or Qatar is like Saudi Arabia. It's different and you have to be specific because if you talk in general, things won't be addressed the, in, in the proper way. And, you know, the truth in, 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 in this whole scene will be, you know, you will miss the truth. You will miss the fact that a government, the, an English government, when, when it listens to someone, they might have as a target to protect their people. But when you listen to someone in order to kill him later on, just because his political opinion are different than the government opinions, that is the problem. I think we are all vehemently agreeing with you, Rada. I think that is absolutely the case. And we... You know, the, the issue of surveillance, um, both mass surveillance, as was revealed with the Snowden revelations, um, as well as targeted surveillance and the link with hacking, poses a, a an existential threat to journalism, uh, to press freedom, and of course, to human rights more broadly. Um, uh, we, we did a big campaign actually under the Obama administration called the Right to Report in the Digital Age, specifically to draw uh, attention to the fact that surveillance poses this fundamental problem. And now we've seen that that has only worsened with the expansion of this extremely sophisticated uh, spyware technology. And I think you're absolutely right. You know, this is not just the purview of dictatorial regimes. We see this being used by uh, governments of all types. And, and Jonathan, can you touch base a little bit on what you've seen? You know, you are the senior Africa researcher. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what you're seeing in Africa in terms of the use of spyware and surveillance to target journalists? 
Sure. Yeah. Um, the I've been zooming out. The the core issue here is privacy. Um, you know, our phones and our computers in in daily life now for for many of us are extensions of our brains. We have so many of our personal interactions and um, organize our lives in so many different ways using these uh, these devices, our phones, and uh, especially during the pandemic. I mean, now that the the ability to physically interact is is more limited than it was in 2019, uh, you know, the reliance on on these devices is even more acute. And so, when you know, surveillance basically gives uh, governments or or those who may seek to harm us access to to those devices and to those parts of our lives, to those spaces that we share with. Um, people that we're closest with, and that's obviously, you know, going to have a chilling effect uh, on the public at large. That prospect, but for journalists and other civil society members, where they rely on their devices to speak to sources, right. to conduct research, to to do the investigations that allow them to do their jobs and keep the public informed, to hold uh, power to account, um, you know, to to invade those spaces and to invade those. Uh, communications, you know, has an extraordinary chilling effect. And we see that with spyware, but we also see it with other forms of surveillance, uh, where journalists, you know, think twice about the types of communications that they're having. Journalists don't take their phones to meetings. The 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 barriers, uh, the friction that is created in their ability to do their job and serve the public is increased with this uh, lack of respect for privacy. And ultimately, you know, there are cases of self-censorship. We we documented this all all over the world, really, where journalists, you know, think twice about what they're reporting. Um, many don't. There, I'm not. I'm not saying that there there isn't courage in, in the press today. There absolutely is. But the consequences of this pervasive censorship uh, um, surveillance through spyware, um, through uh, telecom communications monitoring. Um, and and really through attempts by authorities to access devices when they're not remotely through spyware or when they when journalists are arrested, you know, has consequences for those uh, journalists' um, ability to do their job freely and effectively. Um, Brian, you have worked. I mean, you, you've made documentaries now um, focused on two countries that are at the forefront of the spyware industry, of weaponization of spyware, targeting journalists. Um, you know, Russia has has been behind the murders of several journalists. Um, Saudi Arabia, obviously, they imprison journalists. One of the, some of the most challenging places to work, as well as some of the most sophisticated technologically and in terms of information operations and manipulation. How do you, I mean, do you have a, an affinity for these types of countries or talk a little bit about what it's what, what it was like did you see any similarities differences you know talk about russia and saudi arabia as to you know these kind of situations there well i i i i think um you know the the similarities really when just stepping outside of whatever uh we're talking about in regards to uh cyber threats and hacking is that you have two regimes, and obviously there are others in the world. I mean, this is going on obviously in China uh, and and North Korea and uh, and other um, you know kind of totalitarian or authoritarian states um, that simply just don't care um, about human rights and also will you know will lie 
and use any means necessary uh, to subvert the truth. And I, I think this is where, you know, I really see these parallels um, and similarities. I mean, you look at Putin's Russia, and what's interesting is that most of the PR and what Russia is doing is not for the global stage. They don't really care. Putin doesn't care that you know that he's lying. He doesn't care that he knows that you that he poisoned uh, Nalvani or Skirpal or Lithanenko or you know or murders etc. Um, that's part of his goal as the Russian state to uh, instill fear. What his what he cares about, and I know this from my work on Icarus. I know this from continued work. Um, is what the opinion is of the Russian people. And so while the outside world can be sitting there going, you know, all the evidence is clear, what you, you know, that you poison Nalvani, right? To the Russian people, his message is, well, traitors should be punished. Um, and, uh, and, and that is essentially the, the way to, you know, uh, essentially control minds by uh, by allowing uh, you know his people to understand um, that these kind of acts are going to be punished while not taking responsibility i think the same can probably be said uh, about saudi arabia so i think you know to answer your question what i've generally seen is that authoritarian uh, leaders uh, or dictators um, you know operate in in very much the same fashion um, there was one very telling thing um, Right following the murder of uh, uh, of Jamal Khashoggi, um, there was uh, uh, and this was in the early days, and I don't remember the date. There was there was the meeting uh, of um, uh, of members of the G20, and MBS uh, came there, and as he saw Putin, the two of them high fived each other, and this was literally right after the murder of Jamal. Uh, and to me, that high fiving was almost like a Hey man, congrats! You're you're in the club. You go and murder dissidents. <laughs> Good for you, man. And uh, and that is uh, uh, while there's something humorous in the uh, uh, in the complete brazenness of their embrace and and high fiving each other. Uh, there's something incredibly concerning that what has happened is that the leaders of these countries, where there is money and power and weapons trades and oil and all these other things uh, going on behind the scenes are increasingly understanding and learning that no matter what they do, they can get away with it. And, uh, and the Biden administration's response um, only confirms that. The member states of the G20's response only confirms that. What, yeah, what has been happening in uh, you know, this year and the year after Khashoggi's murder uh, you know, at Davos in the desert, the Saudi, you know, uh, investment initiative that MBS holds where, you know, leaders of Goldman Sachs and KPMG, et cetera, et cetera, were there only confirms that. And I think the overall message is that, you know, whether it's hacking a dissident's phone and using that information to then go decide to kill them uh, or it's, you know, or it's brazenly poisoning someone uh, outside your own country or cutting them up in a consulate, et cetera, that the world response is allowing these people to understand that 
these actions will be tolerated. There is no punishment for these actions. And so I think if you're looking at the threats of cybersecurity, which is, you know, clearly uh, uh, serious, um, what I think we have to look at beyond that is not whether or not there's going to continue to be cyber hacking tools and this, that, and the other, because there's, that's, that's a given. That's going to happen. But what is the bigger issue is, is what is going to be the world response from countries that have the power to actually make change or impose sanctions uh, that these sorts of behaviors um, that there's repercussions for. And right now there are none. I couldn't agree more. I mean, that has been, I think, one of the biggest um, challenges working over the past uh, several years, certainly under the Trump administration, when you just saw a complete abrogation of any sort of effort to um, push back on really abhorrent uh, threats and, and attacks on journalists. And of course, Jamal Khashoggi is at the pinnacle of that, where you know, not only did you see that um, no one was held accountable um, under the Trump administration, but also now it, you know, it's it's made, I guess this administration sees that it feels that it can't hold um, the, the top leader accountable. So now we're in this very difficult and, you know, terrible situation for the world where essentially, as you just said, Brian, the, the signal has been sent that it is okay to target and attack journalists and dissidents around the world. And as we conclude here, I just, you know, I think one of the threads that really stands out here is how these attacks are transnational and cross-border. And, you know, we had a question in the chat, which we didn't get to about Iran and whether Iran has, you know, used the same approaches and it has, and my colleague posted a link to some of our reporting on that. But we're actually seeing that, you know, this transnational cross-border targeting of dissidents, of journalists is increasingly common and even our own colleagues at the Committee to Protect Journalists. Um, the Rezions in Iran, um, you know, continue to get targeted online and, and with hacking attempts. Uh, my colleague Sharif Mansour, who like Omar has uh, had his cousin is in prison in Egypt and is under severe threat um, here in the US along with his father. You know, so, the, you know, to your point, Brian, the threats are ratcheting up. Um, we don't see governments that should be playing a leading role doing that. And we've seen, you know, some initial indications from Biden that he wants to do that, but we need to see more and we need to see more countries taking that mantle on. And a very small step could be to put some restrictions on surveillance and spyware. And again, I want to encourage everyone to go and check out the policy brief with some very specific recommendations for at least a small step that might help equal out this terribly uneven power relations between the truth tellers, the people who are reporting on issues on the ground and governments whose resources far outstrip them. So with that, I wanna thank our panelists. It is emotional um, what we're talking about to talk about your personal experiences, um, what Jamal went experience and Omar, what you continue to experience in exile, the ongoing repercussions of the harassment that you faced and Jonathan, your effort to help elucidate these threats around the world. Um, Brian, we look forward to seeing what your next film is going to be about. And I want to thank you all. Thank you to everyone for joining us. Thanks to our panelists. Do please uh, take a look at the, watch The Dissident. You can, uh, if you attended this 
on this platform, Crowdcast. You have a link. You can still watch it, I believe, for a couple of days. Otherwise, the video, um, the documentary is available on all the platforms. So thank you so much. And thank you to our panelists. We'll see you again soon. Thank Bye -bye. you. Thanks.